You heard Kelsey, our children's director, earlier say, when life is unfair, God is good. That was the very first lesson they learned on Monday morning of day camp, and I think it's a good one, because unfair means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. My five-year-old would say, Dad, it's so unfair. Hawksley, my three-year-old brother, took my Lego. And I would say, you were playing with that an hour ago. Yeah, but it's mine. And to him, that's really unfair. Unfair might mean saying, my brand new phone charger doesn't reach all the way to my bed, and that is not fair. Or a couple of my friends who were recently vacationing, and they said, oh man, we were away for a week and it rained for a couple of days while we were in the shoe swaps on a houseboat with our closest friends for a week. And you think, okay, let me shed a tear for you. It might also mean your friend sitting in your living room weeping and saying, I just lost my job. I have no idea how I'm gonna pay rent. I have no idea how I'm gonna put food on the table. It might mean you looking at your spouse and saying, I don't know how I can do this anymore. I'm torn between work and our parents and our kids, and I don't have anything left. Some things are a little more unfair than others. We're a church that is passionate about young families. We threw summer day camp all week. We're doing summer fest today. We have a relationship with an orphanage in Guatemala. And it made me start thinking about somebody who lived a long time before us in the 1800s. A man by the name of George Mueller realized something isn't quite fair here in London, England. And he recognized that there are hundreds, if not thousands of street orphans running around the city of London and they have no place to go. And so he thought to himself, God, when life is unfair, you are good, and you will rescue those who call out for help. So he started to pray. And him and his wife decided to take their home and turn it into an orphanage, welcoming about 30 kids into their house. The problem was the people on their street were not happy about this. It was a nice, quiet street, and suddenly there's all these kids running around. But George Mueller is thinking, there's nothing else I can do. What am I supposed to do? Just throw them back on the street? And so he continued to pray. And without the internet, without social media, without GoFundMe, people heard about what was taking place, about what was going on. And within a couple of years, he opened an orphanage for 200 kids. Yet the need continued to grow, and so did Mueller's faith. Over the next 20 years, four more orphanages were built, caring for 2,000 kids every single year. Without any government aid, without ever asking for help, without ever receiving any extra money from people that he was going towards, George Mueller cared for 10,000 orphans and 120,000 students were put through school because he prayed. He was so successful caring for orphans that his detractors complained that he was raising the poor above their natural station of life. When life is unfair, God is good and he rescues those who call for help. Our stories may not be quite so dramatic as that, but many of us go through times where we think life is unfair and we're calling out to God to rescue us. How do we navigate high school and college? What are we supposed to do with the rest of our lives? How do we make rent when there isn't money in the bank account? How do we raise our children well? How do we balance work and family and social commitments when life just seems like it's too much? If you have your Bibles with you, Oh, I think, guys, did my, there we go. 
If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 14. If you don't own a Bible and would like one, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and that is our gift for you this morning. Or if you think, you know what, I want a Bible wherever I go, you can go to bible.com app, download a Bible onto your smartphone that works across all the devices. We're in Matthew chapter 14. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. And if a Bible is brand new to you, open it up to the table of contents, you'll eventually find the book of Matthew and we'll head over to chapter 14. Jesus is coming off one of those days he would just rather forget. A group of people came up to Jesus and let him know one of his closest friends had just died. This wasn't even a death of old age, and while sad, you kind of know it's coming. This is a man who Jesus loved deeply, one of his closest friends, his cousin. And he was telling people to stop acting in their evil ways and follow the teachings of Jesus who's been walking around. Well, one of the political leaders did not like this at all, and so he actually captured Jesus' cousin, his name is John, and threw him in prison. Eventually, he was hosting this big dinner party, and to impress his guests, he took this man out of prison and beheaded them. Check out what it says in verse 13 and 14 of of Matthew 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. This makes sense. For most of us in this room, when a loved one dies, we either want to get away on our own or get away with our closest friends and not talk to anybody. But check out what happens next. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. But the crowds wouldn't go away. News spread that Jesus had arrived, this man who works miracles, this man who casts out demons, this man who can heal people right in front of you on the spot. Some people were even saying this man was the Messiah. This man is God himself made flesh walking among us. And so a few dozen turned into a few hundred, turned into a few thousand. And in this remote place, after Jesus had been ministering to them all day, they recognized these people are hungry. Very few of us have brought food, but one man brought a little bit of food, a couple of fish and some bread. And so Jesus took this and multiplied it to feed the masses, thousands of people. Most of us in this room have probably had people in our lives pass away. Can you imagine ministering to somebody the rest of that day? About five years ago, my grandma died on a Saturday night. She was older, we knew it was coming, but it was still unexpected that it would be that day. I showed up to church the next morning and I had to preach, and thankfully I said to the congregation that I was a part of at that time, my grandma died yesterday. I don't know if I'm gonna make it through this message. And I'm glad I did, because near the end, I just broke down in tears and wept. Think about the day Jesus just had. I found out my cousin was brutally murdered. I wanted to escape, but it didn't happen. I've spent the whole day ministering. I can't begin to imagine how Jesus must have been feeling. So he spent some time just checking in. This is Matthew 14, verses 22 to 24. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind raged against it. 
I get a kick out of verse 22 if you want to take another look at it. He doesn't ask his disciples to leave. He makes them leave. I'm a parent of a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. I'm kind of curious how this plays out. Did it start with a suggestion? Hey, guys, it's been a long day. Sun's getting real low. Why don't you hop in the boat? I'll catch up with you later. Only to have his friends say, no, that's all right, Jesus. We'll just hang out with you. I'll say to my kids, hey, we're going to go somewhere. You want to go to the bathroom first? No, Dad, not at all. Only to have the suggestion turn into request. Hey, please head over to the other side of the lake. I'll meet up with you. Hey, kids, I said it as a question. Go to the bathroom. They still don't get it. This is when the disciples are reminded that they're talking to the Son of God whose voice created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And they're saying, go to the other side. I'll meet up with you later. To my two little boys, go to the bathroom. I don't want you wetting the car seat. In the midst of what had to be an emotionally exhausting day, Jesus knew what he needed. Time alone with God. A few years ago, I was at a conference, and the opening speaker talked about burnout, and he put a thermometer on the screen in front of everybody. Accountants know that in March, they're going to hit that burnout stage, right? There we go. And they recognize that if they live in that place for a while, life is not going to be good. You can visit that burnout stage, you can visit the red, you can visit the intensity, and for March and April, accountants know life is going to be crazy. For teachers, they know that during the report card season, life is going to be a little bit intense, but there's a downtime. There's a time where they can relax afterwards. But listen, it's equally dangerous, said the speaker, to live in that place where there's no challenge at all, where you're just bored all the time. One of my closest friends used to work for a company where he would brag that he worked maybe 10 hours a week, got paid a wonderful salary to do so. But after a couple of years of this, he said, Dave, I am bored out of my mind. There's only so many times that I can work on my fantasy football team. And he still wasn't any good. (laughs) The speaker said, when you live in that area that's halfway in between where it's going to push you and where you can relax, that's where true growth happens. This is the sweet spot, living in between where you're challenging yourself, yet at the same time getting the rest you need. Jesus understood that this has been an emotionally exhausting day. He needed to spend time with God. He needed to spend time recharging his batteries. Last week, Pastor Mel spoke about something that I think is worth repeating. I threw an alliteration because it helps me remember things more easily. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually. As intense as the day might be, are you able to spend time with God and just get away? Brand new to our website, if you go to erbc.ca, under the resources tab, we just put something up about how to read the Bible. How do you recharge your batteries? Is it watching a little bit of Sports Center or Netflix at the end of the day? Is it opening up your book and reading a chapter? Is it going on a walk with a family or on your own? How can you spend some time of each day just to recharge your batteries, even if just for a couple of minutes? One of my friends who's sitting right in this room with us uh, has an extremely full job. He works a lot of hours every single week. And I said to him, how do you manage to work so much yet still be a great husband and a great dad? How do you do that? And he kind of chuckled and he said, Dave, I work a lot of hours. 
but Saturday at noon, I shut my laptop down. There's always more phone calls to make, always more emails to respond to, but for a day and a half, my wife and my daughter know that I am completely available to them. And he picks it up again on Monday. He understands what it means to withdraw weekly. Think about the richness of abandoning annually. For those of you who are visiting with us and for those of you who are regular attenders, this is what Pastor Mel has done over the last year. He's hired a brand new worship pastor. He's overseen the development and the launch of a brand new worship service. He's hired uh, two more pastors on staff. He has talked over and over about what it means to develop a team with chemistry and culture, and he has done so. And after a year of all of this hiring and of transitions and so much more, in June, he took a three-week break. And he has come back refreshed and recharged and ready to go. Verses 25 to 27. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. The Roman military divides the night into four watches between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., each one lasting three hours in length. That means that Jesus is walking out on the lake towards the disciples sometime between 3 and 6 in the morning, and that the disciples have been fighting this horrific storm for nine hours. I don't care how good of shape you're in. To battle a storm for that length of time would be physically exhausting. And then you look up, and you see a guy walking on water. Here's where our English translation doesn't quite get, catch the gravitas of what's happening. The Matthew is written in Greek, and Jesus says to them in the original language, take courage, I am, which is a reference back into Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the second book of the Bible where God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. Now, most of us haven't been caught in a big storm at sea, so let me change the scenario a little bit. Imagine that you're on a flight and you're visiting a family or you've got a work event in Toronto. And you're hopping on the plane, you're over Saskatchewan, you're over Manitoba, and this big prairie storm hits. And there's lightning and there's thunder, and the plane is going through all this turbulence, and you're starting to freak out, and you hear a tap on the window, and Jesus smiles and waves at you and says, It's okay, I'm here. And you think, yeah, but you're flying. <laughs> this would be a little bit terrifying. But Jesus has not only checked in with himself and made sure he's okay, he's checking in with the people closest to him. And in doing so, he shows this proof of power. Verses 28 and 29. Lord, says Peter, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. Let's go back to that thermometer for a moment. Peter has just spent the night in a fishing boat being rocked by the storm. It doesn't sound like he's going to die, so he's not in the high red. He's certainly not comfortable, so he's not in the white. He's somewhere in between. And yet he realizes that if he wants to grow, if he wants his faith in God to be increased, he needs to step out of the boat and take a risk. What about you? For some of us, this happens when we start a brand new job. There's new challenges, there's new opportunities, there's new coworkers, there's new cultures, and the growth curve is steep. For some of you, you might be thinking, I'm not challenged at all. Is it time to go back to school? 
Is it time to start a second job or look for a new one? Do you need a side project? Maybe it's time for you to start your small group. It might be terrifying, but that's where the growth takes place. Over the summer, we've been using three words, invite, include, invest. Do you need to think about how you can do one or all of these things at some point over the summer? Verse 30, but when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, crying out, Lord, save me. In one verse, Peter gives us both a good example and a bad example of what to do when life seems overwhelming. Let's start with a bad example. Most of us have been there before. When work is absolutely overwhelming and it's creeping up to 60, 70, 80 plus hours a week and you think, I don't know if I can handle this anymore. I was talking to somebody just this past week who said, I'm caring for my aging parents, I'm caring for my grown-up kids, and I'm expected to be grandma. This sandwich generation is real, and it is tiring. Or maybe you're thinking, I've got a full-time job, and I'm caring for parents, and I've got social commitments, and I'd like to volunteer more, and life is exhausting. The sky gets a little bit dark, and it feels like you're drowning. And you notice what Peter did? He just starts focusing on his problems. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and he goes, there's a lot of waves going on over here. He looks over at the boat where his friends are in the boat and they're, and they're looking at him going, what on earth are you doing? And he starts to sink. He's focusing on his problems rather than focusing on Jesus, which is something most of us do all the time. We see the mountain of projects at work, we see the dirty house, we see 106 emails that haven't been responded to, and we think, I don't know if I can handle this. To quote the comedian Jim Gaffigan, do you know what it's like to have four kids? Imagine you're drowning, and then somebody hands you a baby. <laughs> Life feels cloudy, it feels overwhelming, and we start to drown. You can't take it anymore. You feel like you're going to crack. You feel like that next request, no matter how small it is, you're just going to snap and bite somebody's head off. But then Peter gives us a good example. Beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. And rather than focusing on his problems, he starts to focus on Jesus. Whenever I preach, I run my sermon through a couple of filters. Is what I'm saying in agreement with the rest of the scriptures? How do I take the passage at hand and point it to Jesus? And one of the other filters I run it through is, if my soccer teammates were right here sitting with me, what would they say? What would my closest friend on the team, 37 years old, double income, no kids, think about the comment, keep your eyes on Jesus? What would my other friend, just turned 40, two kids in high school, great life, would he go, eh, the friend on my team who's 42 years old, single guy, runs his own business. How does this hit home? Does it sound a little bit weak? A little bit like something grandma says to her grandkids right before they go to sleep? To which I ask, what's the alternative? When life is crashing all around you, and you've done your absolute best, and you've looked in the mirror, and you've gritted your teeth and said, I can do it, and you can't. When you'd love to tell your boss, boss, this is too much, I can't handle another project, I'm crumbling, I'm not getting enough sleep, I'm tense with my wife, things are bad, and you know, well, it's the worst recession our province has had, go find another job. 
when you want to rely on your family, but you're realizing they're totally reliant on you, where do you turn? What else do you say? But then you stop and you realize, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is actually the Son of God, who has left heaven, take on human flesh, and walked among us, does he not know exactly what we're going through? Can he not see the big picture and recognize the challenges that are taking place all around us and that when we're drowning, he's the one who can reach out his hand and pull us back up out of the water? Verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Here's my big idea this morning. God rescues those who call for help. When Peter called out to Jesus, he reached out his hand and Jesus caught him. It doesn't mean all our problems are going away. It doesn't mean Peter just walked back into the fishing boat and suddenly his clothes were laundered and dry and folded nicely. He was still dripping wet. It doesn't mean that when we enter into that level of intensity and growth time that there isn't challenges and cost. Cost financially, cost relationally, cost emotionally. It means that when we're going through a challenge... When we cry out to God to rescue us, he reaches down and he helps us through it. Verse 32, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. There's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. This is the end of chapter 14, which means it's smack dab in the middle of the book, and this is the first time the disciples ever acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. It's a turning point. Jesus has revealed himself to them over and over again, and they finally acknowledge who he is and what's taking place and how powerful he is. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I already have a relationship with God, but this is a good reminder. It's a good reminder when things are challenging that I need to call out to God. I'm glad there's something on our website that teaches us how to read the Bible because it's a little bit overwhelming at times. But some of you might be here because your kids dragged you here after a week of day camp and you're thinking, that's interesting. I'm not sure I believe that, but that's interesting. And the bulletin that was handed to you was a map of Summerfest. On the flip side is something called Alpha. Alpha is an opportunity to explore the Christian faith in a non-threatening place. We have a great video. We feed you. If you have kids, we'll take care of kids, and they get to spend more time with Kelsey, who's great. And you get to ask questions, to think, to reflect. What does it mean if God is real? If God is who he says he is? And how will that impact the rest of my life? God wants to rescue every person in this room and every person around the world. And it's a glorious rescue. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what took place this past week at day camp. I think Kelsey said 26 kids said, I want to follow Jesus. Thank you for the fun that we're about to have in just a few minutes and grabbing a burger and hot dogs and salad to go and then have bouncy castles and petting zoo and bocce ball and so much more.
But God, may we be reminded that when things are good, God is good. When life is unfair, you are still good. And be reminded that you are the one who, when we call out, will rescue us. It doesn't mean our problems go away, but that you will help us through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.